Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. The Allied assault on Gallipoli in 1915 was an unmitigated disaster. 51,000 dead and a total of 300,000 casualties for nothing. It's almost like it was World War I. Heavily entrenched in mountain positions, the Ottoman Turks defending the Dardanelles Straits had proven themselves a match for anything the British-led attack had thrown at them. The dream of knocking the Ottomans out of the war early and opening up a supply route to the Russian warm water ports of the Black Sea was over. The Ottoman Empire, while not the economic and military giant of its heyday, still posed a formidable challenge. Britain especially fretted over the Suez Canal in Egypt, critical to its ability to reach India easily and vulnerable if the Ottomans decided to launch a major offensive against it. How best to take them on though, when the carnage of the Western Front in France and Flanders was demanding the lion's share of the war effort by far. But then, a letter arrived on the desk of the British High Commissioner in Egypt, Henry McMahon. It was from the Emir of Mecca and King of the Hejaz, Sharif Hussein. Hussein was a subject of the Ottoman Empire and a powerful one, the empire's second highest religious authority. In his letter, Hussein asked for British support for an independent Arab state carved out of the Ottoman Empire. In exchange, Hussein promised he would lead a huge Arab revolt. This was the answer the British had been looking for. The Arab revolt would tie down Ottoman forces and give British and Indian troops a much greater chance of success in the deserts of the Middle East. So, Britain gave an enthusiastic yes. The Arabs could have their independent state. But there was a bit of double dealing going on because the British and French had their own designs on the region settled in the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which divided it between them. Add to the mix the British Balfour Declaration supporting the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine and the League of Nations backing Anglo-French mandates in the Middle East, and you had a real cauldron of stink brewing. But into this cauldron strode an enigmatic archaeologist, writer, romantic, soldier and intelligence officer of the British Army. He was at first unaware that he had swan-dived into the cauldron's deep end, but when he became aware, he remained what he had always been, an unwavering supporter of Arab nationhood. He befriended Hussein's sons, became an indispensable member of the Arab revolt, attacked Ottoman outposts and railways, and went distinctly off-message when he helped the Arabs to take critical Ottoman towns knowing that his superiors most definitely didn't want him to. This is the story of the Arab Revolt, the beginnings of the long road to why the Middle East is like it is today, and the man who became synonymous with the struggle for Arab nationhood. Welcome to the eighth episode of Secret Warfare, Lawrence of Arabia. The Ottoman Empire joined World War I by declaring jihad on Britain, France and Russia in November 1914. It urged its Muslim subjects, indeed Muslims everywhere, 
to take up arms in this new holy war in support of its primary ally, Germany. But really all it did was to accelerate an underground movement of Arab nationalism that had been bubbling for some time. Led by Sharif Hussein, this Arab nationalism now rose to the surface. The Ottomans demanded that Hussein send troops for the war effort, but he instead sent an urgent message to the British saying that he needed to know right now whether the UK would support him in his fight for an Arab nation. His correspondence with McMahon had been going on for months, and Britain needed to show its hand, or Hussein would be forced to side with the Ottomans. It was now early 1916, just after the disaster at Gallipoli. Britain, needing a way to weaken the Ottoman Empire internally, agreed to support the creation of a unified Arab nation in what is now broadly southern Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq and Kuwait. With that promise secured, Hussein launched the Arab Revolt in 1916 and quickly asked for British help. He was sent Thomas Edward Lawrence. Lawrence was a second lieutenant at the time and had been working in Cairo for British military intelligence, but was now sent out to Hejaz. He quickly formed a close personal friendship with one of Hussein's sons, Faisal, and was almost instantly thrust into the inner circle of the Arab Revolt's high command. Lawrence's rapid adoption into the Arab leadership owes much to his genuine love and appreciation for Arabia. He had previously worked as an archaeologist in the Middle East, managing the local workforce, learning their customs, and becoming pretty much fluent in Arabic. He was most happy wearing the traditional Bedouin robes, complete with the curved Arabic dagger, the Jambia. He himself said, if you can wear Arab kit when with the tribes, you will acquire their trust and intimacy to a degree impossible in uniform. He ingratiated himself with his hosts, and Bedouin culture was such that they didn't really care that he was a mere junior officer of the British army. His personal relationship with Arabia, Arabs, and in particular Faisal, meant that he was catapulted into the Arab leadership. That leadership was soon tested, with 20,000 Ottoman troops assaulting just 5,000 of Faisal's tribesmen. The revolt had centred on the province of Hejaz, which lies in what is now western Saudi Arabia, on the coast of the Red Sea. And when those 20,000 troops attacked the major town of Yanbu in December 1916, the revolt was hard-pressed to resist, let alone survive. The Ottomans had been trained in modern military doctrine by German officers and supplied with cutting-edge German technology. Faisal's tribesmen fought them with a few outdated rifles and a couple of toothpicks. In other words, it was a mismatch. Now Lawrence's influence told and probably rescued the Arab revolt from early collapse. Using his contacts back in Cairo, he had the Royal Navy steam at all speed to Yanbu, where the massive naval guns poured fire on the hapless Ottomans, forcing them to retreat. He then convinced Faisal to drop his plans to attack the city of Medina and instead focus his efforts on a guerrilla campaign against the Ottoman railway from Damascus. 
the Turks were using it to send supplies and reinforcements to take on the revolt, but it was 800 miles long and wound its way through harsh and sparse desert. It was as vital to the Ottomans as it was vulnerable. It would also play to Faisal's strengths. Lawrence said, The value of the tribes is defensive only, and their real sphere is guerrilla warfare. They're intelligent and very lively, almost reckless, but too individualistic to endure commands or fight in line or to help each other. So, daring hit-and-run attacks on the railway would be perfect, rather than a direct assault on a major city. At least not yet, because Lawrence also wrote, it would, I think, be possible to make an organised force out of them. But that would take time, so now the guerrilla campaign began. Dozens of attacks were made on the railway, one of which was on a station at Abba el-Nam. Lawrence laid an ambush and waited, admiring the countryside around him. The hills about us were typical of the eastern Hejaz. They were of glistening, sunburnt stone. The upper part of the hill is a cap of an outcrop of base rock, and the lower screes are hard at the foot, where they are packed with a thin soil, but loose and sliding on the slopes. From them sprout occasional thorn bushes and frequent grasses. The commonest grass sends up a dozen blades from one root and grows hand to knee high of yellow-green colours. At the head are empty ears between many feathered arrows of silvery down. With these and a shorter grass, ankle-deep, bearing a bottle-brush head of pearl grey, the hillsides are furred white and dance gaily in the wind. But he had to leave his reverie when an ally arrived with 300 men, doubling his force. He had wanted more, as the Turks had well over 400, but he had a slight numerical advantage, and it would have to do. At nightfall, Lawrence laid a mine under the tracks, and positioned two machine guns and a howitzer to lay fire on the station. Come the morning, they opened up, shells bringing down the upper floor of the station building and machine gun fire killing 30 Ottomans. They watched as the mine under the tracks detonated as an escaping train rolled over it, derailing it and sending it crashing to the ground in a plume of dust and smoke. The rest of the garrison fled into the hills and the Bedouin tribesmen used dynamite to blow holes in several sections of the track. Despite the success, the railway was only put out of action for three days, but there were so many of these attacks, at so many different places and at so many different times, that it forced the Ottomans to tie up thousands of troops trying to guard its full length. Lawrence had so far been coordinating closely with the British and French, but now he learned of their secret treaty, Sykes-Picot. The Sykes-Picot Agreement was the Anglo-French conspiracy in 1916 to split the Middle East between them, sidelining all the previous promises to Sharif Hussein that a united Arab nation would be allowed to spring from the defeat of the Ottoman Empire. What is today Palestine, Israel, Jordan, southern Iraq and Kuwait would go to Britain. And modern-day northern Iraq, southern Turkey, Syria and Lebanon would go to France. Basically, 
Britain had promised the Arabs that it would support the creation of a new Arab state to get them to rise up in revolt, and then in secret made another deal altogether with France. In short, it was a stitch-up, and at some point Lawrence found out about it. He was so embedded with the Arabs and so enamoured of them that to say he was unhappy about it would be an understatement. In a message in his field notebook, he wrote, Clayton, Clayton was the British Director of Intelligence in Egypt. Clayton, I've decided to go off alone to Damascus, hoping to get killed on the way. For all sakes, try and clear this show up before it goes further. We are calling them to fight for us on a lie, and I can't stand it. But he came up with a plan that would try to stymie the Anglo-French conspiracy, and he would do it in secret, without anyone other than his Arab friends knowing it. Lawrence knew that if he could help the Bedouin capture enough of the strategic cities in the Middle East, it would give them a huge bargaining chip at the post-war negotiating table. And he set his sights first on Aqaba, a town now in southern Jordan, nestled on the coast of the Red Sea. Aqaba was one of the places promised to the French in Sykes-Picot, because it would give them overland access to the Red Sea. And for that very reason, Lawrence wanted it for the Arabs. He knew that if he requested his superior's permission to take it, it would probably be denied given Sykes-Picot. So around May 1917, he simply disappears for two whole months. He takes a small band of men on a 600-mile march through the desert, raising hundreds of tribesmen, and then falls on a cabba suddenly with horse and camel. In one of the actions, just 50 Arab horsemen charged 550 Ottomans, causing them to scatter. They then endured a flank strike from camel-riding tribesmen, routing them. Lawrence himself tells us, When sunset came, one of the Arab leaders, Alda Abu Tay, collected the 50 horsemen now with us in a hollow valley about 200 yards from the Turks, but under cover, and suddenly charged at a wild gallop into them, shooting furiously from the saddle as he came. The unexpectedness of the move seemed to strike panic into the Turks, about 550 strong, and after a burst of rifle fire, they scattered in all directions. This was our signal, and all the rest of our force, perhaps 350 men, dashed down the hillsides into the hollow as fast as the camels would go. The Turks were all infantry, and the Arabs all mounted, and the mix-up around the spring and the dusk, with 1,000 men shooting like mad, was considerable. As the Turks scattered, their position at once became hopeless, and in five minutes it was merely a massacre. In all, I counted 300 enemy dead in the main position, and a few fugitives may have been killed further away. The prisoners came to 160, mostly taken by Sharif Nasir and myself, since the Arabs in the Marne area are very bitter against the Turks and are set on killing all they can. End quote. The Arabs were bitter because the Turks had been killing women and children, and they had executed the popular and anti-Ottoman Sheikh al-Rahman. They'd harnessed him between four wild mules 
and torn him to death. Lawrence described the decision to attack Akaba as a rash adventure which suited his abandoned mood, caused by his knowledge of the Sykes-Picot agreement. He went on, I had whispered to myself, let me chance it now before we begin, seeing truly that this was the last chance, and that after a successful capture of Akaba, I would never again possess myself freely. He feared he would be court-martialed, or at least reprimanded and removed from his position with the Arabs. But actually, despite annoying the French, Lawrence's British superiors were quite pleased. Akaba had threatened the flank of the Anglo-Egyptian expeditionary force which was marching on Jerusalem, and also removed any Ottoman naval threat to the Red Sea. Lawrence was promoted all the way to Lieutenant Colonel, and he and the Arab forces now joined the march on Jerusalem. But in November 1917, disaster struck for Lawrence personally. While he was reconnoitering an Ottoman town named Derar, Lawrence was captured. While he was in captivity, he was heavily beaten and sexually abused. He was never specific about what happened to him, but he did say, in Derar that night, the citadel of my integrity had been irrevocably lost. Despite his ordeal, he managed to escape, returning to his Arab friends and British colleagues. Eventually, he helped them to capture the major strategic prize of Damascus towards the end of the war in October 1918. Just 30 days later, the Ottoman Empire surrendered. Immediately after the war, Lawrence travelled back to Britain, where he began advocating for an Arab nation with the war cabinet and writing articles in mainstream newspapers saying the same. At the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, he drew enormous attention to himself by wearing the long, flowing robes of the Bedouin. He was a member of the British delegation and was firmly set on winning support for an Arab nation, except now he thought it should be divided in three, one for each of Sharif Hussein's sons, with the greatest share going to Faisal. Lawrence encouraged Faisal to attend Versailles in person, and they each read eloquent and powerful speeches arguing for Arab nationhood. But the Sykes-Picot agreement was getting in the way. The French in particular were adamant that their colonial interests be respected. It's been suggested that Britain was actually quite happy to have such determined voices for Arab nationhood present at Versailles, because those new nations would fall under British influence and not French. It turns out the British, who had after all won most of the war in the Middle East with over a million men, didn't fancy handing over a lot of it to France after all. This is all hearsay, but it does look like Britain wanted to back out of Sykes-Picot by pretending that Faisal's Arabs did most of the liberating and now deserve to be given their nations. It looked, on the surface at least, as though things were complicated even further by the British Balfour Declaration in 1916, promising support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. But astonishingly, Faisal met the Jewish nationalist and future first President of Israel, Chaim Wiseman, shortly before Versailles. 
There, they signed an agreement respecting each other's rights and agreeing to work in, quote, accord and harmony at the peace conference. How differently things could have been had it not been for Sykes-Picot, because the French dug in their heels and demanded that it be honoured. Britain, with no way out, agreed, and in 1920, the League of Nations granted the Anglo-French their mandates in the Middle East. The Arabs got nothing. The French then even went so far as to go to war with Faisal in the Syrian kingdom he had established in the lands he had won from the Ottomans. At the Battle of Maesalen in 1920, the French decisively defeated Faisal's forces with overwhelming assaults of cavalry, infantry and tanks. Lawrence of Arabia was, of course, dismayed and he became hugely disenchanted with working at the top of the military, with politicians and government. By 1923, he had joined the Royal Air Force in a much more junior role and happy for that fact. Aside from a small stint with the Royal Tank Corps, he stayed with the RAF until 1935. Just two months after discharging from the RAF, he was riding his motorbike in the country lanes of Dorset, a county in southern England. Two young boys on their pushbikes suddenly rode into view and Lawrence swerved to avoid them, crashing badly. Six days later, he died on the 19th of May, 1935, aged 46. Lawrence of Arabia was a pioneer of guerrilla warfare and a fervent believer in the rights of Arabs to determine their own future. He had arranged the meeting between Faisal and Wiseman where they made the extraordinary pact to work together for mutual Arab-Jewish benefit in the Middle East. Had it not been for the Sykes-Picot agreement, it's dizzying to think what this might have meant for the region. It would be too simplistic to say that all of today's problems in the Middle East are a result of Sykes-Picot and the Paris Peace Conference. And it isn't certain that had Lawrence got his way and Faisal be allowed to establish his independent Arab kingdoms, that that would have meant eternal peace and harmony. After all, following World War II, several independent Arab nations were created alongside the long-promised Jewish homeland of Israel. And that hardly solved the problem. But there's no question that at Versailles a huge opportunity was wasted and the foundations of future strife were certainly lain, despite the colossal efforts of Lawrence of Arabia. Join us next time for the final episode in this Secret Warfare series, where we look at some of the lesser-told stories of the resistance movements of World War II. The French resistance is famous, and we looked at one daring member of it, Virginia Hall, in our first episode. But there were so many others, including in Soviet Russia, Greece, the Balkans, Poland, Denmark and the Netherlands. And of course, anti-Japanese resistance movements in China, Korea and Indonesia, to name just a few. I pick out some of the stories of bravery, daring, tragedy and courage of the hundreds of thousands of men and women who risked their lives fighting for the light of freedom during the dark days of World War II. 
I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.